to, uh, you know, without knowingly, sometimes we don't want to, to learn, right? We are afraid to learn and that become ignorance. Welcome to Redefining Refugee, a podcast by Gators for Refugee Medical Relief at the University of Florida that educates and emphasizes issues affecting the most vulnerable populations. Join us as we become more culturally competent, discussing the biggest worldwide crises affecting millions, learning, advocating, and taking action to give refugees a voice. Thank you for joining me on our third episode of Redefining Refugee. So with me today, I have Sarah Malay and Rhea Chowdhury. So could you please introduce yourselves for me? Hi, my name is Rhea. I'm a fourth year student at UF and I'm the director of educational services for GRMR. And I've been with GRMR since um, my sophomore year of college. Hi, my name is Sarah and um, I am from originally from Burma. I'm living here in Jacksonville for um, maybe 11 years now, trying to uh, assist some um, refugees from Burma and from around the world. Okay, thank you both. So Sarah, can you tell me a little bit more about your background? Okay. I was born and raised in Burma, in northern part of uh, my country. You know, uh, my parents are missionaries, meaning to say they, they were dedicated in the church. And most of us are siblings. We were born and raised and grew up in the um, mission field of my parents. And so our compassion, our passion is always serving others. And I grew up there in, um, uh, under the militarism. We have different ethnic groups, rebellious groups. Um, and always we face all the time fighting against the military and you know rebelling and stuff things like that and so it's growing up is always we are not stranger to hearing uh, the you know the shooting and bombing and things like that and so oftentimes um we can i mean we also caught in between you know, fightings and things like that i grew up in that situation and um, because of that, even the needs that my parents were serving, and we saw that, but because of the security reasons, my mom and my dad, they decided not to keep us uh, with them. And so when we reached a teenager, we were sent to the boarding schools in the cities, naturally run by the priests, uh, our parish priests or religious nuns and things like that. And so throughout the school year, we grew up there. And then um, summertime only, my dad came in got all of us and then uh, we went home and we spent two months during summer only as a family that we, we were able to spend together. The reason my dad only came to pick, pick up us or either bringing us to the uh, boarding school or coming back home is always my dad because, because of the security reason. And so we have many checkpoints that we have to go through all the checkpoints. Uh, my dad had authority over all the check, you know, all these um, small entities and so either military government or the uh, KIA, we call it an independence army, or any rebels groups that that's just, you know, in between. Um, nowadays, they just go by car. And so like after four or five hours, you reach to the destiny. But during those time, in our time, we have to carry our own mosquito nets, food, clothes, and we, we had to sleep like two nights in the jungle, three days walking on the landmine and in the jungle. And so that, that's how we, we grew up for our safety and for education. Then uh, I finished my um, zoology degree in my country. And then later I got um, invitation from the uh, Marino sisters. So I was able to, this one's on me. And so I went to the Philippines and, and uh, studied five more years degree in religious education. And then later they, con- they continue sponsoring me to um, 
New York and Chicago, and so I, I studied in the uh, theological union, uh, Catholic theological union in Chicago, ongoing studies for two years, and then right after I finished my training, I got three years commitment, and I went to Hawaii, and I did I served mission in Hawaii, and so by the time there, there is something that urgent me, and so I, I came to the Jacksonville, Florida. I visited. I mean, before I moved in here, I visited twice. Jacksonville, I said, no, Jacksonville is not for me. And it's so dry. You know, the first time I visited was from um, Chicago, you know, living in Chicago, New York life, and then coming to Florida. I said, no, no, Florida is not for me. Um, but um, I came here, uh, this is my 11 years. So I've been serving the communities. What kind of service do you do? I, um, I got involved with the um, nonprofit organizations. And Catholic Charities, um, I spent eight years with them. And, and last year, they had uh, the program that I was running. And there was an end of the uh, grant at, at the same time. So, so the refugee declining coming in. And so I was laid off. Over these uh, past eight years, I served with them. And then but over the 10 years, 11 years, I, I served the Burmese community at large uh, during my free times and weekends and things like that. And their needs, you know, at the beginning, at the beginning was challenging because uh, they were just resettling and then we, we provide transportations, you know, and also the material likewise, you know, so we collect that stuff and then door-to-door -door service deliver and then also the education that we serve uh, for the children and also because we are, you know, coming from Burma, we have more than a hundred dialects that we speak. And so common language was difficult. And even though Burmese was a, is a common language, but we don't, not everybody has opportunity to learn Burmese language. And so we try to pick them, you know, spend early in the morning. We wake up at, on Saturday and pick them up. And then we uh, try to um, accommodate some classes, Burmese class for them and also children. And at the same time, you know, English class as well. And so that's what we did. And then finally, uh, we tried to have a common ground to communicate. So those are the things also we, we do. And um, also, because of our background, we are lack of uh, emphasizing on the early childhood education. And so that's what, that's what I emphasize also education, early, uh, early childhood education. And there were times that um, we open up our places for on a you know on a Saturday basis. We require parents, either a mother or both parents, they have to come with the child. And so we we based on Montessori education system, and we educate the kids, the children. At the same time, also we educate the parents, caregivers, to follow up what you know we expect from them, and, and uh, uh, we we educate the mothers who are pregnant, you know, during the pregnancy, we follow them. And um, they are in the school now, they're doing very well. The one that, that got our services, they are extraordinary children. Thank you for sharing that. Um, could you tell me more about the impact that COVID has had on the community that you work with? And uh, because of this COVID lockdown and things like that, and, and a few of us, you know, like myself, we lost, uh, we lost job, right? And uh, it's, it's trying to apply for another job. It's also, you know, doors are, the chances are very, very uh, little. And um, uh, at the same time, in, in the meantime, some of our community members also got um, impacted, you know, with COVID. And so there are times that we had to do the, um, what do you call the quarantine? And so because family, community members, they're sharing the apartment, right? 
two or three people they are sharing it so if somebody is there and then they have to you know look for somewhere else to um, to uh, you know for that to accommodate that period so those are the things that we need to at the same time because of the, the economic impact economic impact and so they couldn't keep their apartments they couldn't keep their cars you know for mortgage and and and, and, and monthly bills and so so we need to adjust some of the um, the needs to respond so currently we opened up one um, chaplain's house to another person community members you know so things like that and so um, there are impacts a lot at the same times when even though every family is struggling at the same times when we, we hear that somebody lost her or his community members or loved ones so we try to gather we try to you know uh, bring in some donations financial whatever that we could and then we try to contribute you know despite of difficulties we try to support to one another and which is which is a communal spirit that i'm i'm finding from every person and it's, it's despite our difficulties still generous and try to help you know to survive one to uh throughout this uh, pandemic and i i'm blessed to have them and now it's it's a morally support at the same time so also financially you know physically that we are there to one for one another yeah, despite all the hardship of the pandemic, it is really wonderful to see how people do come together and support each other and all the creative ideas that you come up with to address these new needs. I would love to hear more about how you came to the U.S. and what that was like for you. So coming to the U.S. is the, um, as I said earlier, um, I was uh, given special invitation, uh, sponsored by the um, uh, Mary Law Sisters group. So that's how um, I, I joined them and, and as a missionary I came and they sponsored me and, and I got training and by the training after I finished training so the first assignment uh, three years assignment I went to Hawaii so that's how that's how I um, um, I was teaching in the uh, high school really I was teaching religion in high school are you here with your family right now I have my siblings my dad is with me I have two siblings and my dad and then Recently, I mean, two years ago, we have one nephew, and so he, he's just a joy for us. That's great. Did they come with you here, or did they come later? Uh, I came first. I came here, and then uh, my, my, my two other siblings, they came as refugees, um, because, you know, in our country, um, it's unstable. As I said, yeah, I introduced also earlier that we grew up in the uh, fighting battle, you know, battlefield area, fighting against one another. And so um, everybody in the country suffer from that fight. You know, civil war is going on. It's nonstop, more than 70 years under, under the you know, suffering that we are facing. And so um, there's no safety at all. And, and um, people are relying on, you know, one another. And, and so try to find any source, any means that, for the survival, you know, for the better future life. And then uh, later, I, after I became a citizen, I petitioned my dad. And so my dad is with us. Thank you for that. It must be nice having your family here with you to be able to support you through all of these hardships now, especially. Yes, absolutely. Could you talk a little bit more about how coming to the U.S. was different for you since you came here for service versus your siblings and the others who came here as refugees and how that process was different? So coming to the U.S. in my turn was extremely difficult. I mean, now it's also difficult, but different circumstances. So remember, during my time, 
we have um, in our country, women are not allowed. <laughs> women were not allowed to truck to go out. <laughs> so we have a race, uh, ethnic, ethnic racial system. At the same time, gender issue we have. That's that's the um, society that I grew up. And so applying for a passport was extremely difficult because I was a woman, and then you know women are not allowed. So. Um, it took me like almost two years to, to get that one passport. Um, I have to follow here and there to the office, this and that. And so uh, the reason that I was able to get my passport was because of one of our relatives have a um, uh, higher position in the, one of the offices. So through the connection only, I was able to get my passport to get, you know, so that um, even that passport was just only well for one year, well for one year. And when I learned that other people passport had barely for 10 years, I envy so much. I envy so much, my God, people have 10 years and why do I have just only one year, you know? So why is the system is different? So I have to ask my, my, my uh, uh, question to myself. I have to ask and say, why am I so different from other people who has 10 years and they can just apply for within two, three weeks, and then they got the passport. And I got like almost two years of application, and I spent a lot of money. And also I just got only one year by the passport. And so um, it was just a tough situation that I, I, um, I got. And I had to have an invitation letter to apply for the passport. So as I said earlier, I have very much community that sponsor me. So they make sure that they were going to um, take care of every expense of myself. So they have to write the letter to the embassy, uh, which is my case was in the Philippines, right? They send the letter to the uh, American, no, Burmese uh, embassy in the, in the Philippines, in Manila. Somebody had, somebody had to bring the invitation to them and then they have to read, they have to do research and they have to endorse that letter with the stem. So, with that stem only, I can apply my passport. So during my time, there was impossible mailing. I would never receive that if they mail it to me, <laughs> to my country. So somebody had to carry that to me. And so then with that, that one, I was able to um, uh, apply for the passport. So that was, that was during my And that's why I was able to come and sponsor me. So I had a good sponsorship and, and uh, so, that's how I, I was able to come into the um, United States. So during uh, the other some people, you know, some other siblings, as I said, my dad, I, I petition. So so he's my dad. I want I want. They have my. Unfortunately, my mom passed away earlier, and so only my dad had. You know, and and I was as we were growing up, we had very very uh, little time to be together as a family. Um, only two months, imagine the whole year, only two months. Even the two months that I was with the families, imagine daytime. I had to travel to 10 miles, 15 miles, 20 miles on food, gathering um, vegetables from my, my mom's uh, farm. So we do have slush and burn farm. I collect, I collect that, we collect that um, entirely, collected the veggies and carry on our head and coming home, bring it home. 
and then we try to bundle them night time even though we're so sleepy you know you're tired the whole day walking like 20 you know 30 miles walking back and forth collecting all those stuff and then you're already tired night time but you have to bundle still bundle them and then you need to make it like fresh and then like five in the morning four in the morning you have to wake up and go to the market and try to uh, get the space for you to sell it in the market so that we, I saved that money for my school expenses for the whole year pocket money like as a pocket money and, and um, because my dad was a, a church worker, so their salary was very limited. And so they had to do like slash and barn farming every year. And so because of their slash and barn, uh, every year it's getting away from the villages, you know. So that means if today, this year is like 10 miles away and the next, next year is like 15 miles away, 20 miles away, you know. So it's getting farther and farther as we grow up. And so then but. But we had to do, we have no choice. Their salary cannot afford all of us to be in the boarding school, you know. So we had to earn our own. And on top of that, you know, going, walking back is like two nights spending in the jungle, you know, sleeping and three three days walking um, under the landmine. You know, we, you have to step on, on, on the landmine. So make sure you're not, not stepping on the mine so it does not blow up, you know. So in terms of that, um, that kind of situation that grew up. And so... I mean, civil war is going on everywhere, you know, civil wars. Only in the cities and stuff, things like that, only safe. And villages are being burned. Where can you go? You know, you have to go for a safety space, place that you go. And uh, that's why there's a space and there's a refugee opening up. So people would automatically, you know, uh, look for that opportunity, go for that opportunity. And so UN was uh, good enough that they screen everybody, you know, make sure that they are really victim of this war or whatever. And then they, they do all kinds of process. Takes time, takes years. Some of them, they never come, they never, they, they, they were never resettled by anybody. You know, they just spend their life in the camps and things like that. So some people are lucky enough, maybe within a year, within two years, two years will be a shorter, you know, the shortest period that they are being screened, or, you know, security reasons. And so uh, for their interviews and things like that. And so that's how, when UN endorsed them and they got that piece of paper from UN. And so that's their document that they are able to travel. And uh, depends on which government they, they, uh, they welcome them. And so we have many uh, refugees, they are scattered all over. That's why even just for one family, they are, some of them are in, in uh, Australia, some of them are in, you know, in uh, Germany, some of them are in the United States, somewhere there are in, in, you know, somewhere else. You know, New Zealand or somewhere else, wherever that. So now that the family have to travel, you know, if they want to meet them as a family, you know, they together things like that. And so, um, the resettlement here in the U.S. is whoever is um, approved by the U.N. oversee, and they would, um, you know, uh, the uh, uh, USCIA, the Homeland Security, is the one, uh, you know, uh, giving the permissions to get the refugee status, right? So they are being screened, they are given their status, and so then they have benefits here, and then they're looking for who can resettle them, right? And we have different resettlement agencies that they, they accept them. And uh, uh, at the beginning, the refugees are difficult to travel because they do not know anybody, they don't have friends, right? Um, but refugee resettlement 
uh, teams and they are working with the volunteers in the local communities. So they, they, they are the one, they are their host uh, family. The immediate family would be the uh, resettlement agency that they met. You know, the first thing, the first time they were, they arrived in the airport and somebody had to uh, hold their names or, you know, they, they go and meet them in the airport and so they bring them. And then the next day, a caseworker has to assign, you know, has to visit them within 24 hours visit, make sure even before that, I used to involve also bringing the refugee picking up from the airport. It's bringing them and then introduce them, you know, what's in the apartment. So we set up apartment for them, right? And then uh, because they came from different uh, different places and so different uh, different culture and so what we are using here the system is not used to with them and so we have to introduce them like where is cold water where is hot water you know how to close the door how to open the refrigerator I mean which one part is freezer which part is the refrigerator we need to explain because they have not used it some of them right. And so that's why we give orientation. That's what we do. And then uh, the next day, 24, within 24 hours, a caseworker had to visit. And so try to make sure I enroll in the uh, benefits, you know, the food stamps for the six months, you know, food stamps and the Medicaid and try to get that um, registered. And so that, that make appointments and try to develop. In the meantime, within that period, a caseworker and match grant has to um, work together and then try to look for employment for them if they're employable so they have to educate them you know train them and, and do the mock interview and then you know dress them well and so then they they, they, they try to work with the um, employees and so they the uh, employment you know they, they got uh, try to find a job for them so once they got the paychecks coming in and and so they have to teach them, you know, what, how to open a bank account, what is, you know, saving a credit, all those kind of stuff during the period, orientation period that the refugees are being given those uh, information. And so at the same time, they have to also uh, develop their, uh, they have to go to class, you know, ESO class. They created uh, ESO class for them so that they can be able to uh, communicate well in their job. And, uh, uh, so some of them, they came with the uh, very, very uh, professional um, background. But here in the United States, it's different system. And so they cannot use the professional right away. They have to have certificate from here. So uh, in order for them to be in the professional, they have to go through from basic stuff. Everything start all over and try to get license and then be a professional, a doctor or lawyer. So um, some of them, you know, some refugees, they come in with no education at all. So they struggle even more, right? And so um, uh, language barrier would be the first thing, difficult. And, um, and before, earlier, earlier state, uh, it's, it's extremely difficult for them. But now after 10 years, 20 years, uh, the uh, refugee has been already resettled and they have been living here. They buy their own houses. And they live in the community, they build a community, you know, in the community and they contribute their creativity. And so they are become now, they become now company owners, you know, of in the community. And so they are the one can help those newcomers. Thank you for that. So do you think that the government provides enough assistance to refugees during the resettlement process? Some majority of the fundings are from federal funds. 
So it's a government funding. And so that's, that's how some of them, they got the private funding. They got, you know, so uh, whatever their funding requires. And so uh, that's how the refugees are getting all those benefits. Benefits are from those fundings. And so, yes, they got from the government. And then uh, for the temporary, you know, they have welcoming money, they call it. We call it the welcoming money. They receive a little bit of money, like 1,000, 1,100, or 100, you know. So those are 1%. We receive that welcoming money. So imagine with that 1,100 or 200 welcoming money for one case, you have to, you know, you have to rent an apartment for that person before that person comes. So with 1,200, how much can you, you know, do? Uh, you can't do much, right? You have to provide, there's a checklist that you have to provide, um, like beds. You have to have a pots and pans, plates, for example, right? Uh, at least one bed, one table, you know, one um, alarm clock. So you have to have that, provide that uh, for, a, for um, a client that comes in. So you have to use, you have to use from that welcoming money, which is very limited. So how could the process of resettlement and transition to life in the U.S. be made easier for refugees? It's a tough situation, a tough question. Every person needs differently. And so I cannot say, you know, do this and then everybody will be, you know, things that easier. Because based on coming from your cultural, political situations is different. Culture is different. And the needs of that person, individual, uh, is different. So mostly everybody is seeking for asylum, is looking forward for the better future for everybody. That's the common goal. Uh, if you don't want to have a, you know, brighter and freer, you know, uh, building a better future, you won't, you won't, you know, go through that uh, uh, difficulties applying for that process, right? Because your own government does not provide you what you need. And so that's why you're looking for, sometimes you have to run for your life, right? Most of the time you have to run for your life. Uh, uh, you're unsafe to stay in that location that's why you are seeking for asylum you're seeking for refuge you're seeking for refuge and so that's why uh, based on the individual needs so with how things are right now is the assistance that the government gives is it the same for every refugee does it get individualized based on what that person needs uh, every case every single case received the same every single case thank you and while we're on this talk, could you tell us a little bit more about the community you're part of in Jacksonville and how this community formed? Um, I work with different communities, different communities, and um, I am uh, mostly spending my time with the Burmese community. I, um, I do, uh, we have the, um, what do you call, um, co-workers also, they help. They are working with different communities, and so through our co-workers, links, connections, and so we, we work together. Um, uh, I was heavily involved with the Catholic Charity, so I have, uh, you know, many people, uh, co-workers with the uh, Catholic Charities link as well. At the same time, also um, people that work in the um, YMCA, you know, so Embar, you know, it's, it's just kind of through our friendship, our friendship and also we I do I do work with the different um, uh, different charges organizations and um, non-profit or, or at the same time also profit 
So since since I started business also, and so I have to build a link with the business people, and uh, you know, different from different uh, cultural like uh, African business people, you know, and um, Chinese business people. So I try to build up um, depends on the customers that I serve here. At the same time, also the charitable organization, I build up welcome clapping peace organization that we, we develop over the year. We have this NGO that I'm running. Through NGO, we're trying to uh, serving the needs of the community, education, you know, agricultural, cultural, likewise, we're trying to support. And, and we're trying to connect links with the other people. And UF students, you know, you try to come and help us out all these years, like three years. And so, um, and also we do have some other um, people that according to the area, we have uh, some church members, you know, from different church ethnic uh, denominations, like Filipino group, they come and help us because they know we're doing something and they want to be part of. And, and you know, so we welcome people. We welcome when people call me and say, email me, said, we heard you, we saw you, this, you're doing this, what do we, what can we help? Right? So we have Japanese association. They reach out to me and said, Sarah, we have we have Japanese group. We have this our community group. We want to help. What can you help? What can we help? You know, we are available. Let us know. You know, so they reach out to me and you know, things like that. And so locally, um, we we um I'm receiving kind of marching. They want, you know, we want to support one another and try to help. Uh, each organization has their own models, their own uh, charisms, right? Missions, their own visions. So those vision and missions, we combine together and we go. Everybody wants to do common good, right? For the common good. And for the common good area, we cannot touch down all different areas, right? So I'm targeting this one east and then somebody else targeting west. And so we're connecting with east and west. And at the same time, you know, the north and south so that we can reach our existence is reach to reach out reaching out to every corner of the needs and so that's what sister link brother link that we call we mentioned and so that that's how um, we need to develop more at the same time also which is very important that we can work one another so sarah what is your specific role that you play in the jacksonville community uh right now uh, I am a liaison, liaison for the uh, community. And so in terms of our community needs, somebody pass away, you know, we need to arrange some funeral stuff, you know, things like that, you know. And depends on the needs. If somebody arrives and then, you know, if the person does not have this and that, somebody is sick in the hospital. Because of COVID, we cannot visit now, right? But through the phone call, you know, we console. And then if something's announcement, something has to be done. And then I do the announcement, you know, I do try to reach out where somebody calls this and that. And so, so what kind of assistance do you think the community still needs that they haven't been able to receive yet? Educational would be ongoing. You know, we have many media influences. And so culturally influenced, that would be also very, very important that you keep your own culture to maintain your own culture and then you find your own group. Um, at the same time, it's also very important to go over beyond of your own group, beyond your own uh, religion group or cultural group or your own 
family group, whatever that your peer, and trying to um, connect, link with the other people. And then uh, at the same time, also um, try to discover each one of our giftedness. As I said, many people came with a creative, creative minds, you know, creative art. They have their own profession, background. But because of requirement of the certificate, you know, you're not certified and you're not able to, to produce, you're not able to provide what you have. You know, there's the limitation language barrier, right? So because of that, um, you, you are not um, able to be who you are. You are not able to contribute in the community. Your, your whole giftedness at the same time, um, how do we get that receipt? How, how do we get a service for them, you know, to in order allow them to open up who they are and provide the environment to become more creative person? Here is a freedom country, right? But that freedom does not, um, uh, does not uh, waste it or do not misuse it. But that freedom is supposed to be developing your own, my own identity, my own good characters and develop that, make it bigger and produce it not only for your community, local community, not only here, but at the same time, you are still rooted in your home countries, wherever you come from, right? So if you are able to give that your creativity here in this freedom country if you can develop how much more that we can create a peaceful world right so those are the things that i think is still limited okay so my next question is what else could americans or any citizens of a host country do to help refugees during resettlement um i mentioned it already earlier about you know People came with their own professional, but because of the system requirements that they don't have a certificate here right away, and uh, everybody has to walk through that. Sometimes for like one year, two years, three years, sometimes ten years. Sometimes they give up. Most of most of them they give up. You know they're passionate about. They give up, and so they they become somebody that they don't want because of survival. They have to do in a salon. They don't want to, right? And and so so those kind of things that is happening to everybody, everybody. So if we are doing that, ongoing that, we are destroying another person's <laughs> whole life in terms of productive, in terms of uh, creativeness, in terms of you know the way you want to contribute to the community because because. You are, are some. You are acting somebody. You are not acting according to who you are, right? And so those are the things that that um, if we can change that, if we can accommodate that, then probably more welcoming and more supportive and more productive. The one that receive a local community at the same time is the one who is being received. You know, so so kind of a kind of both way. You know, it's, it's you have to balance this one, the one who is being received. That person has to adjust every single thing here. You see? So, but this one is not adjusting the one who is being received because this is our system. 
you like it or not you know so so we are getting into that and then then you're being swallowed by the system and you're you're choked right you're being choked and so you you cannot breathe you're not moving so you will die with that choking life so i'm seeing that way so so you know based on that if we can be like um cooperating both the, the host community and the, and the being received if we can be adjustable you know so then i say more uh supportive and more productive uh produce you know that we can we can see okay great um, my next question is, what sort of misconceptions have you seen people have about refugees? Okay, the first thing that mind to me is refugees are getting our benefits. <laughs> you know, so they're not working, they're lazy, they're getting all our money, you know, so the benefits. And, and so, so mostly I'm hearing that uh, misconception, uh, you know, people are, uh, of course, yes, when they come in the first six months, period, they got it, everybody got it. But uh, the system here is set up for the family, this year, you know, family, children, and they get more longer period, they receive service. But if you come in a single, sorry, after six months, you're your own, <laughs> you know. So we have a lot of people don't receive services. A lot of people, they have to work like a like regular American, like an American, you know, they have to go through, they have to work and um, get benefits through their employment. So we have a lot of people that, so um, that, that's what I wanted to, you know, clarify that yes, there are people who come in with the health um, challenges. And so they need more help, longer period of time. You know, so we do, we do serve people here who are suffering kidney failures. You know, so they have to go to three, three times a week dialysis. We can we cannot tell them stop, you know, going from dialysis. So, so those kind of uh, conditions, of course, they receive. They continually receiving until they get transplant, until they get better or something, you know. So what's whatever. Um, but for the normal person who is employable person, good age, a single person, you have to. I mean, every six months you're you're out of program. <laughs> you're on your own, you know. So uh, you have. You have to uh, work for yourself. So that's why not not all the refugees, not every single refugee is receiving all the benefits and consuming all the benefits of the local community. It's not. No. Yeah, for sure. What else do you wish people knew about refugees? Um, they are um, good people. They are um, they are longing for, looking for um, better, you know, build a, a better future. They want to uh, contribute common goods. They wanted to, you know, they have goals. They wanted to do something great in a freedom country and things like that. And so um, not all of them, but many of them, you know, majority of them, they have their own professional that they came in, uh, giftedness. And if we can use that giftedness um, and use it accordingly, then we can create better community. Um, if we have more creative people, then if we don't need all of those here in the local, so we can share that with other local communities, uh, nation likewise, at the same time, international likewise, we can still share those, you know, uh, resources with other people who are especially in this 
century, we still have a lot of a lot of countries, a lot of societies, a lot of cultures. They are in need of those services. They are in need of those uh, any any uh, uh, help that we can provide is a lifesaver. You know, life changing for many people. So those are the things that that if we can elaborate, if we can cooperate, if we can create and we can work. We can listen and we can work one another and create that opportunity. If we can create that opportunity locally, I think that would be a starting point for us to create uh, our universe better. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. I think if that's something that more people knew or realized about refugees, I think mm-hmm. America would probably have a lot better response towards them. It's so easy when in politics they're talking about refugees just to view them as numbers. There's this many million refugees coming to America or there's this many refugees from this country. But it's so easy to detach yourself from that, that many million people, that many families. They're people just like everyone else. They have goals, they have dreams, and they're just trying to find a safe place. No one wants to have to pack up and leave their country, but they want what's best for their family. And if they come to America or a different host country, they are just trying to make the best of their life. They are professionals and educated just like we are. And they are contributing to society as well. So I think I completely agree that it's something that mm-hmm. if more people knew that and realized that, I think mm-hmm. it would be a lot better. Remember before they came in, they have gone through a lot of a lot of struggles, a lot of life challenges that they face. And so uh, they came with the uh, hope with a high expectation for their lives that goals that they set up um because when they come in here the society the system is different they cannot function according to what they want and so we can see them being pressured you know and so they are um, are suffering from anxiety suffering from um you know mental sufferings that that um some of them you know they face they couldn't cope they couldn't accept they couldn't and ended up you know, um, some needs so that, that that can happen, and uh, also some some employers they love they love to hire refugees. According to them, they work so hard. You know, they are not lazy. They are they, you know they are reliable. They are responsible. Um, so they are looking for refugees workers, and among the refugees, they are looking for specific culture as well. You know, so. That depends on the individual's person's uh, motivations and also the uh, uh, background as well. Yeah, I mean, on that subject, um, refugees, of course, experience a lot of trauma before mm-hmm. they uh, become a refugee and during that process and even resettlement. Um, so I know in my own research, there are a lot of, there are higher rates of many types of mental health problems within refugees just due to that trauma. In your experience, do you think there's um, enough awareness about mental health in refugee communities and enough resources for them? People are aware of that, and uh, but culturally, you know, this mental, physical, mental challenge, um, mental illness, those are not really common to address some culture. Um, sometimes the person has already extremely, extremely coursing or, or that you are seeing in the uh, behavior just the time we call up and then ask for help that can happen also you know, in, the, in the community and depends on the culture I would say um, as well and so it's not much openly discussed and depression you know traumatize their experiences 
triggers, you know, something that will uh, harm their mental ability. Uh, we still need to educate those more, you know, more often and in an in appropriate way according to cultural and according to also gender. You know, we have gender um, issues as well uh, rising almost every um, there are resources available, but at the same time, because of language barrier, and it becomes uh, limited resources. How do you think that we can address mental health issues while being culturally appropriate? Working with the um, culturally, you know, according to each culture, according to the needs. Sometimes if we can get involved with the cases, you know, if families open to it, and so we can learn and then develop what their needs are and then if similar situations similar cases arise then then we can provide that you know we can create that we can support the family and also we can sometimes we don't we don't take time to listen to one another you know that's that's how this um pressuring stuff um, you know mental um, challenges mental issues arises so um, uh, um I, I am not sure for every culture how that works socially, you know, when they uh, gather and um, uh, accommodate them where they feel like they belong or where they feel like they are safe. They can create those kind of environment and they can just come and, you know, relax, enjoy, and then, um, you know, uh, make friends to one another. So at least emotionally, if we can release a little bit of those uh, little things, that programs that if we can create for them and I think that will eliminate uh, some of the uh, main issues that will be coming, you know, would be arising and stuff things like that. Uh, from time to time, if we can reach out to them and give some workshops and some games or, you know, activities or something when they are available. And um, if we can do that, I think that would be also great. Um, according to the group we can approach you know so uh, I'm, I'm just telling about my uh, my particular culture uh, we have different different uh, denominations and we do have different dialects that people gather according to their needs according to the you know where they speak together the same language that they feel like they are belong they belong to you know so in that time of uh, their gathering we can come in and we can you know, do some uh, presentations and uh, mingle with them and talk with them. I think provide some um, some relaxation of stuff. I think that can help. Uh, that can that can uh, help and that can be created. You know. Okay, great. Could you speak a bit about your life now and your future plan? Um, right now, right now I am uh, working on my doctorate program in preaching and ministry. Um, my last um, semester, major semester, and then uh, also I'm I have I still have to do for two more electives, and then then I have to do dissertations, another two or three years down the road that I'm working on, and um, and also I'm also establishing uh, one um, Asian uh, ethnic grocery store, where I hope that I can get some stable income. I'm also running the um, Work of Love and Peace nonprofit organization. Uh, and the, uh, we, I support our chaplain and also the Burmese community the needs. And so we need financial as well, you know, to for my bills, you know, like school fees, books fees, 
uh, internet fee, you know, all kinds of stuff. And for my uh, future plan is uh, after I finish my degree, my study. Because of, as I said earlier, I shared about my education background, my early childhood background, and our country is a mess right now, and a military coup, and everything that that are suffering that around us. And so I am hoping, my passion is targeting on the children, uh, women as well, but but uh, focusing on children, little ones that I, I want to, um, you know, they are very delicate. They are very gentle. The early education that I did not have, I want to provide that. I want to create an environment. I want to build up a school, a space for them that to learn practical. That was all the questions I have. The last thing is, is there anything else you'd like listeners to know about you, refugees, or the refugee crisis? You know, um, I would like everybody to be aware of what is going on. You know, just later of your and I, our unconsciousness that we contribute something to, uh, you know, without knowingly, sometimes we don't want to, to learn, right? We are afraid to learn and that become ignorance. So once we become that ignorance, then without knowingly, without intentionally, our ignorance causes so much to other person. And so that that's how if we can be more open to one another and then support one another. That would be very, very good. That's a really, really important point. At the very least, if everyone took the time to educate themselves on mm-hmm. global issues in general, especially the mm-hmm. refugee crisis, but just in general, if people mm-hmm. took advantage of all the ways that they do have access to this information, mm-hmm. listening to the news, reading up on it, that would just be one major step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So, Thank you so much for being on this episode today. It was really great talking to you and hearing your experiences. Thank you, Emma. It's been a little bit longer, but <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to my story. Thank you for listening to our needs of our communities and you know, the, the, the whole country. At the same time, also, these needs are similar needs for everywhere throughout the country. You know, I mean, throughout the world. So. Yes, absolutely. According to the UNHCR, 20 people are displaced every minute, which means approximately 1,040 people around the world were displaced from their homes since you started listening to this episode. With the record high numbers of refugees, it is more important than ever that we stay educated and do what we can to help. Before we go, make sure to check out our website at www.grmruf.org if you would like to learn more or find out how to get involved. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.